0: The Next Trip podcast with aviation insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40
1: years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other avgeeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about
0: all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own.
1: Good day, and welcome to Boarding Pass 158, operating on December 5th, 2022. This is Doug, an airline pilot. I'm here with my buddy Drew, an airline ops manager and private pilot trainee. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. True. how was your
0: Thanksgiving? It was great. It was traditional. It was, I was actually pinching myself because I was off this whole week while everyone's talking about the load factors (laughs) and all the craziness. I was off, but it was nice to see that it was a smooth week, even at work. How was your week was it was it pretty smooth traffic wise and work wise
1: yeah well i'm I'm trying to remember where in the world i was and what day <laughs> it was that we recorded and what i talked about last I, oh you houston. were i was in um, houston about to fly, were, to fly to honolulu you were in houston. yeah I,
0: right I, so you did Honol- yeah you went to houston houston to honolulu and then honolulu back how uh, uh, we're gonna tell the listeners where you are now but how was that how was your thanksgiving
1: week? yeah that, it was great the flight to honolulu you i think i messaged you and said you would have loved it because we were rocking and rolling and bumping and bopping (laughs) and beeping all all the way across all the way texas to honolulu you fly across half the u.s and we were bumping the entire way and then we hit the pacific Mm -hmm. and this time of year with the winds we, we always say winter winds and i know i've mentioned that massive headwinds heading west so it's a longer flight but because of that the pacific is just super bumpy. And we'll sit, we'll mention here in a minute where I'm sitting right now, I'm in Asia and our flight over here was super bumpy as well. It's just that time of year for the listeners, anyone who's flying from North America to Asia or to Hawaii, or even down to Australia in the next couple of months, expect a pretty bumpy ride, expect a slow ride heading that direction, just because during the winter, the winds pick up in the Northern hemisphere and it slows down mm-hmm. that flight. I actually, I'll come back to that trip. I'll just mention where I am right now. I'm in Seoul. Our flight over here was twelve and a half hours the other day. Our flight home tonight is only ten hours. It's a two and a half hour flight oh, wow. difference. so it's really windy. That really yeah. shows the winds. And for instance, back in like July and August, when I was looking at these Seoul trips, it, it was maybe forty five minutes difference between each direction. Mm-hmm. So the the, the this winter the winter it just really starts to pick up. We had a point over the Pacific the other day where it was like 170 knot direct headwind, 170 knots. That that's you were wow, moving crazy. more uh, close to 200 miles an hour across the ground. Slower in that direction than you would be the mm-hmm. opposite. Actually, it ends up being about a 400 mile an hour difference when you think about yeah. because you're slowing down 200 miles an hour moving forward. And if we were to flip a right. and turn back around. We gain that 200 back, but then we gain the 200 on top of it. I mean, 400 mile an hour difference, depending on direction of travel. That's nuts.
0: So make a mental note when you're flying home tonight. Let me know look what at, your um, look at my, speed my was, ground speed. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you might I've, be pushing like 800 miles per hour or whatever. You know? Yeah.
1: And in, in the KC 10 once coming back from Asia, I, I hit, I want to say it was like 750 knots ground speed. We we had a 200 okay. plus knot till okay. when It was it was nuts. Uh, going back to Hawaii though, I spent my Thanksgiving in Honolulu. We were joking about the cranberry mai tais and things like that.
0: Cranberry all of, mai tai. Yeah. All
1: of the bars that we went to, Drew, they had special mm-hmm. Thanksgiving
0: <laughs> takes
1: on on the tropical drink. So I did Lincoln's I did have ice
0: boy. <laughs> I did
1: have a cranberry. I, I don't even remember what the drink was, but it's it's something that you're like. Mm-hmm. Man, the, I, I wouldn't think to put cranberry in this, but it's Thanksgiving. For the non-U.S. listeners, cranberries are a Thanksgiving tradition. And even my salad on my crew meal, my salad with the crew, or no, my, my fruit, a little fruit cup that I get, they sprinkled mm-hmm. cranberries on top on Thanksgiving you know, as like an homage or, you know.
0: Uh, yeah. And I'm sure that there was like a rice dish with turkey or a, a turkey katsu where instead of pork or something. You're in Seoul. Turbulence was bad. Didn't you say that you had um, you guys had to have the flight attendants seated for hours at some yeah, point? Yeah, let,
1: let, let me let me just finish the Hawaii thing real quick, and, and then we can yeah. talk about this. I know I'm kind of okay. jumping around. It's also six o'clock in the morning here and late mm-hmm. afternoon for my body clock back home. I'm all kinds of messed up, but I You're got back to Denver. Room, so. Yeah, I got back to Denver, and I know I talked about trying to get to see my family which meant that I, I, luckily for me, I can jump seat if I have to. Like when I'm non-revving, if I can't get a seat in the back, I can sit in the flight deck. Traveling Thanksgiving mm-hmm. weekend, I was fully expecting to have to sit in the flight deck because I figured the loads would be full. I was on 777-200 Denver to Chicago, got a seat, got an aisle seat. It was great. Mm-hmm. I was able to, to do the last day of my family reunion. It was awesome seeing my family. Shout out to my cousin Sean who I haven't seen, Drew, I I haven't seen Sean in 25 years, he told me, dude, I listened to your podcast. It's like I I haven't Oh, no way. Did you even know? No. No. So shout shout out, Sean. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, Sean. Thanks for listening. He and I talked to aviation for, it seemed like, hours, and I kept getting pulled. Is this
0: the one you were giving um, guidance to because he was interested in in going Mm. to aviation? No.
1: No. he, he He just... likes it i mean it, it must run in my family i guess her, heretically or her, hereditarily it runs in my family that people just right. love aviation and transportation it
0: does you know you know we're going on a little tangent but um your dad loves flying so there's something there my dad loved taking me to the airport i don't know now i'm thinking maybe it was for him maybe he enjoyed yeah. <laughs> watching the planes too Oh, I'm that sure. was his idea not mine yeah i'm I'm sure you did all right
1: and then well well and then i i got a seat on sunday of thanksgiving non-revving at my seniority i got an aisle seat four rows in front of my family and we were on a triple seven 200 from chicago to san francisco first time for my girls on a triple seven 200 it was our high density hawaii one no seat back screens i i thought they would find it boring and i asked both of them i was like what would you think about my Mm -hmm. airplane they said daddy it was amazing. It was such a cool airplane. Aww. And and here's why the, here's why they were blown away by it. And with no TV it. screens yet. No. Here's why they were blown away by it because it had the middle mm-hmm. seats. It, it had two aisles and it had the chunk of middle seats and that's where they sat and they were like that was so cool. There were so many seats and we were in the middle. So they appreciated. <laughs> well, they
0: appreciated What they appreciated a large cabin. So yeah. they also appreciate uh Thank you, girls, for appreciating a wide-body transcon or mid-con or whatever that was. You flew back with the girls on 777. You were able to sit in the cabin because, you know, we talked about this. The load factors are high, but they're not crazy high, and Mm -hmm. it's not just our airline. It seems like the airlines are doing a much better job of keeping some slack in the system. We talked about this. I worked that Sunday that you were flying back. Yeah. One of the busiest travel days, but you would not know it, Doug. It just felt like a regular busy day it Mm -hmm. was very organized and i know we're going to talk about atc we're, we're going to talk about tsa numbers but that sunday we had storms in on the east coast actually no not storms we had shower rain showers heavy rain showers from dc all the way to new york and you would expect diversions and lots of delays but our friends at the faa handled it very well i got no diversions they all made it in we had a flow program to new york as expected there was one one Almost diversion. We had a, a Tokyo to uh, Newark flight heading our way. And so we got the call, hey, get ready because they're coming in. They, you know, because they got holding going into Newark. One minute on Flight Radar 24 and all our systems, it shows IAD. And then we're getting ready for it. We're telling customs. We're, I'm actually excited. I get to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just one flight right now. And then it changes. So I see on the chat with uh, NOC, nope, they're going to go to philadelphia (laughs) and i'm like i don't believe it i do not believe it they're not going to go to philadelphia because if they're stuck and the crew runs out of legality time what are they going to do in philadelphia we don't have triple seven pilots sitting in philadelphia so i'm like i'm getting ready for it anyway it does actually go to philadelphia and then i was thinking about you because remember you used to fly into newark when you were working closer to when you were in pennsylvania at mcguire or something mcguire air force base yeah.
1: In New Jersey. Yeah. I, well, I, I flew out of Philly most of the time, I would say. I, I flew out of yeah. Newark a couple times, but I flew out, of, flew out of Philly the majority of the time.
0: Yeah. So we're like, OK, they're going to Philly. So their cousin Vinny can just drive down the turnpike. Yeah. <laughs> pick yeah. him up in Philly instead of Jersey, instead of Elizabeth. It all worked out. So it got there and it did make it up to Newark. Anyway, point of the story is as a very organized. Thanks thanksgiving yeah that, that's one of our news stories we'll we'll
1: talk about that well before we move on just real quickly i um... got
0: before we move on i got a shout out i got one shout out myself leslie shout out to leslie she's listening to every episode leslie is a flight attendant with our airline she's been with the airline for years she's an international flight attendant she's normally flying these routes to uh to europe she is also the wife of my coworker nick so Nick is like, you know, she listens to your podcast. That's awesome. And she loved, yeah, and I don't know what it is about flight attendants and de-icing. They love it. So remember Lara, mm-hmm. shout out to Lara from Non Rev Lounge. Leslie loved the de ice talk that we do. And I'm just thinking now she's so smart about de-icing. A customer's gonna be like, what's going on? Leslie is gonna be like, oh yeah, that's orange. That um that's green, that's their type four and they we use that because it has a higher hold over time mm. of about 45 minutes and the customer is going to be like I am so sorry I asked her that question. <laughs> <laughs> TMI but um Leslie thanks for listening and we are going to get her on the show. I'm I told Nick have her call me anytime. We want so one of the topics that we're going to discuss with Leslie Sometimes she's the galley person. So oh, the galley yeah. person, we don't we don't know him or her, but we love them, right? That's how we get the beautiful plate that they set up, but they don't get any of the credit for it. So, Leslie, um come on the show and also tell us which aircraft you like working the best and we'll get a lot lot yeah, of information from
1: her. D- definitely. Thanks for listening. But just real quickly before we move on, as I said I'm sitting in Seoul. Yesterday, Drew, well, first of all, Incheon amazing airport. It was my first time there. Gorgeous airport, super easy to get in and out of from an air traffic standpoint. And I'll oh, talk about the Avgeek Eye Candy at that airport. It was amazing. Oh, wow. Amazing yeah. to see all the wide bodies from all over the world that were sitting there. And the the crazy thing, this is my first time in Korea, driving on the highway into downtown Seoul, which is where we're staying, you can see the mountains of North Korea because they're only like 15 right, miles that's north picture, that's crazy yeah and and as we're driving on the highway we pass this open field and there are just a whole bunch of tanks sitting there just idle tanks sitting in this field and it's just a constant reminder that everything that's going on on this peninsula and I'm sitting in, in Seoul right now beautiful hotel very nice mm-hmm. clean modern city modern and yeah. the the war is not over it's a <laughs> cease it's a ceasefire that it never ended. And we went to the... It's
0: shocking. It's shocking how close Seoul is to the border. It's yeah. You're right there. And we went yeah, to the no, Korean War
1: Museum yesterday. Anyone who comes to Seoul, that's a must-do. It was an excellent museum. Really great job. Just a reminder of everything that happened in the Korean War and, and how there still is this tension that's going on. And you just you kind of feel it while, while you're here. But the funny thing yeah. is I got... You know, you get emergency notices on your phone sometimes if it's an amber alert like if there's an abduction or things like that the other the FO, nuclear war alert. the other fo and i are standing in the korean war museum and we get a public safety notice we both at the same time alert on our phone and it's all in korean so here we are reading about the ceasefire and how like nothing nothing actually got resolved and we get this public safety notice in korean and he and i both are like that we can't read and and we're both standing there thinking, okay, what, what is this? And we just look around the room and see if anyone else is freaking out at all. And that they are just going about their business. So it wasn't anything too bad, I guess, but it it was just kind of, kind of eerie and it it just, it it hits home about this city of 10 million people and what, what they must live under just that, that constant thought in the back of your head about what's just 15 miles to the North of here.
0: We're kind of immune to that because so we're, we're so far away. But something that you sent me, one of the pictures, I think it was from the Korean War Memorial, it's a inscription. It says, if you want peace, remember war. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's not hard to forget when you were so close to, you know, what was the center of activity in a lot of uh, war. So I'm glad you got to see that. One thing I will say is uh, I know that you're in Korea and not Houston because the Internet has not skipped a beat. thanks thanks lg perfect thanks lg thanks samsung yeah samsung yeah i want to go back i haven't been to seoul since the mid 80s so it'd be nice to see you again all right doug let's get some work done back to hawaii it looks like you got out of hawaii just in time mauna loa the nearly 14000 foot tall volcano on the big island began erupting on sunday night this is the first eruption in 38 years The eruption prompted several flight cancellations due to worries about the ash cloud. Airplanes and volcanic ash are not a good mix, as British Airways Flight 9 taught us. Yeah, this is also known as the Jakarta
1: incident, and we're going to cover it for those who don't know about it or don't remember. BA Flight 9 was a 747-200 flying from Kuala Lumpur to Perth in June 1982. The aircraft had just leveled off when its crew noticed a St. Elmo's-like fire glow, St. Elmo's fire is some, it, it's this fantastic thing that we see when we fly through clouds. Sometimes it's this blue mm-hmm. spidery ele- electric buildup on, on the window. And the crew said it it wasn't St. Almost fire because it was a little bit different and, and they weren't mm. sure what was going on at the same time that the crew was experiencing this passengers smelled the sulfuric smoke in the cabin and later noted that the engines were glowing blue about two minutes after the glow appeared. The number four engine surged and then rolled back. Less than 60 seconds later, all four engines were dead. The crew was still unsure what was happening. They declared an emergency and turned in the direction of Jakarta. Multiple restart attempts failed, leading the captain to make one of the most famous cabin announcements ever recorded. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We're doing our damnedest to get them going again. I trust you are not in too much distress. (laughs)
0: <laughs> those captain moody and i'm yes. like that is so british right yeah not even flinching he's you know saying as as it is professional calm collected while well, foreign
1: <laughs> all i all i picture in the back of the cabin after this announcement is made is that scene from the movie airplane where everyone uh-huh. just freaks out and everyone's jumping around and, and screaming right. I, I mean you hear that and it's like what as a passenger, what's your reaction?
0: If you're British, what are you going to do? You just probably take another sip of your tea and carry on. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Panicking isn't
1: going to do anything. Exactly. It ended up well, though. Three of the four engines eventually restarted and the plane safely landed in Jakarta. The flameout was the result of unknowingly flying into the ash cloud of Mount Galunggung.
0: We have more to talk about this, but I want to stop for just a second. because This is a 747-200 that became the world's heaviest glider right then. And looking into this incident, until then, apparently that was the longest glide, Doug, of Hmm. any non-purpose built purpose built, meaning a plane meant to glide. That was the longest glide of any non-purpose built airplane. Do you know what the glide speed is of a 747 200? Yeah, it's probably 280, 290 knots. Yeah, that's right. It's 300 knots. Is it similar for the triple seven?
1: Most most airplanes, it's it's between 270 and 300. It, it, it's all based on the aerodynamics. But yeah, usually that's that gets your best L over D lift over drag, which gets you the mm-hmm. most distance across the ground. And Captain Moody did they did the calculations. They thought that they yeah. could make Jakarta even if the engines didn't come back.
0: Right. Which means Jakarta was about let within 100 miles away I dug into this way too deeply Doug so before we go on 300 miles so all airplanes have something called a VG which is the best glide speed so apparently for the 747 it's 300 knots which is incredible to me because that doesn't sound like a glide speed that sounds like a cruising speed for most airplanes the VG or the V glide speed for my Cessna 172 is 65 knots. Mm -hmm. So as you said, that is the speed at which I can go the furthest distance and lose the least amount of altitude, right? Or basically the goal is to gain the furthest distance so you can get to an airport. The ratio, the glide to uh, the distance to altitude ratio for the 172 is 9 to 1. The glide ratio for the 747, it is 15 to 1. Mm -hmm. So for people who say airplanes, airliners, aren't good gliders, wrong. They're actually pretty good gliders when they need yeah. to be. What this does is, so for that 747, where Captain Moody was so calm and, you know, trying to get the engine started, he could go another, he could go a hundred miles. If he was at 35,000 feet, he'd go almost a hundred miles mm-hmm. with no engines. 787, Doug, the glide ratio, 20 to one. Yeah. Those wings. Are, it's,
1: it's those wings.
0: It's those wings. They're like gliders. You know, that makes sense. You can go, so if you're on a 787, Both your engines fail. If there's an airport within 132 miles, you're going to make it with no engines, which I think was pretty amazing. Back to more information. So this incident completely changed how the aviation industry deals with volcanic eruptions. Before this, there was little known about ash and the effect on engines. It isn't uncommon for flight cancellations or reroutes due to volcanic eruptions around the world. In fact, it happens almost daily. The famous example of this, the most famous example... Was the April 2010 eruption of a volcano in Iceland that almost completely grounded flights in Europe for almost two weeks? I'm going to try pronouncing this. Doug, Ayaj.
1: You're two letters in, or four letters
0: in? Cool. I don't know. Try pronouncing it at home. Um, how do you? How would you pronounce it? <laughs> that. <laughs> nice job. Have you went in Europe? History flying in your career, have you had to dodge ash clouds?
1: Yeah, I I have. Uh, in fact, our all of our weather products, we actually have a layer that we can turn on that shows where there are SIGMETs, significant meteorological events for ash clouds. Uh, it's pretty pretty common actually when you go down to Central and South America because there are several vol- volcanoes in Nicaragua, El Salvador, that area they are constantly active, and we we have to we don't really have to dodge it like we're in the air and all of a sudden like there's an ash cloud and we have to fly around it, but we, we just flight plan right. our dispatchers flight plan us around areas and not all eruptions are the same. Mauna Kea, I believe it's Mauna Kea on the big Island has been erupting consistently for the last 40 years. That's these famous photos that you see of the lava flowing into the ocean. That doesn't create any ash. So when we fly to Kona, okay. when we fly to a- anywhere in Hawaii, that that's a non event because it's not really creating ash. This most recent Mauna, was it Mauna Loa? Yeah, Mauna Loa Loa. eruption. That was a little bit bigger, and that actually did create this ash in Southwest. I think canceled. I read they canceled all their flights to Hilo for a couple days because of it. It's it's common. I actually I was in Australia once, and we we got an extra twenty four hours on the ground because there was a volcanic eruption in Indonesia that impacted our our complete route of flight. It basically blocked. The direction that, that we needed to fly. We had to wait 24 hours until the ash cloud had subsided before we could fly. It, it is a very common thing. What's uncommon is what happened in April 2010 when all transatlantic traffic ultimately was canceled and most flights in Europe because the ash cloud drifted. We talk about the winds in the northern hemisphere uh, up in, in that latitude moving uh, west to east. All that ash got pushed into Europe and, and flights were powerless they could not
0: go because of the ash cloud that was the largest air traffic control shutdown or air traffic shutdown since world war ii apparently Hmm. and it makes sense because how that's a very busy international probably one of the most busy international corridors the north atlantic and for that to be shut down and apparently this is this is very dangerous because the cold water from the melting ice cooled down the lava like very quickly. And apparently some of this wasn't just ash. It was silica. It was glass. Yeah. So imagine that going into engines. So I'm glad no, you know, we I don't know of any planes that uh actually were in that got caught up in into it so that was no i I don't think so and And,
1: and, i i mean the jakarta incident that was back in the 80s before we we really had a knowledge about this and and before the weather products and satellites and everything could really pick it up which is why you don't really hear about incidents anymore because we have such good forecasting and reporting tools that airplanes are, are really not in any sort of danger anymore because we know about it and i hopefully, and I I would like to believe that we won't have another Jakarta incident because we have gotten to know about it so well, and all the tools that we have to avoid it are are that good these days.
0: Exactly. And so, I mean, what exactly is the danger of this ash? So looking into this, the melting point of uh, the particles in the ash is below that of the engine's internal temperature. So these particles immediately melt when they go through the engine, Going through the turbine, the melted materials cool down and they get stuck in the turbine veins and they disrupt the flow of the high pressure combustion gases. And then the engines shut down. So there was one one more incident that I won't talk about too much, but looking into this in 1989, a KLM 747 lost four of their engines over Mount Redoubt. uh, I believe that's in Alaska and they were able to bring it down. They landed in Anchorage. And it was a um, almost a brand new 747, but they got the engines restarted. Close to near disaster flying over these. After this, um, I'm not going to pronounce it, Doug. After this <coughs> Iceland, Iceland eruption, the CAA, the Civil Avi- Aviation Authority in the UK, they did come up with some guidelines so that you could safely fly through or over an erupting volcano, I guess, if the ash is below a certain level and it is... Uh, four milligrams per cubic meter. So it's a okay. metric. I don't know how much that um, equates to, but they have something. So it doesn't mean that it's a complete complete shutdown. You are still able to fly, according to them, safely, four milligrams per cubic meter. During this event, 95,000 flights were canceled. And IATA estimates that it costs our, costed our industry $1.75 billion. So yeah. it's a, a huge amount. Doug, this is the slowest news week in recent memory, possibly since we started recording. Luckily, the Thanksgiving holiday week was slow, too. Not regarding passenger numbers, which were just a few percentage points below 2019, but regarding delays and cancellations. The TSA screened 2.56 million passengers on Sunday after Thanksgiving, the highest single day total since the start of the pandemic. You were traveling and I was working and we both saw how organized it was. Air travel went off mostly without a hitch. A massive rainstorm spread through parts of the South and East East Coast on Saturday and Sunday, causing delays to several thousand flights, but only leading to a handful of cancellations. Industry analysts were quick to praise airlines for a smooth week compared to large meltdowns over some of the holiday seasons. Most media outlets were complimentary as well, with headlines like Thanksgiving travel was not a fiasco. I know that it was painful. For them to have that headline, because I know they were waiting <laughs> yeah. for something more, more dramatic, though one reputable media outlet seemed to make it sound much worse than it actually was, saying thousands of post Thanksgiving flights delayed amid messy weather. No, it wasn't. It was no the D.C. to New York area. And even that wasn't too, that bad.
1: Yeah, that that was that was an attention grabbing headline that they had probably written the week before Thanksgiving, ready no to pub- ready to publish, just drooling, watch, <laughs> watching Flight Radar twenty four, FlightAware, waiting to to publish this report. No, I, as we talked about in the opening, it, it it was it was very very busy. In fact, I messaged you, we were waiting in stop go traffic three miles from O'Hare. Like I was actually worried. Because it took us an hour longer to get to the airport than what I had planned Mm -hmm. and was expecting. And I was fully ready to send Marissa and the girls just straight to security, like have them run to security. And I would check the bags. And because Mm -hmm. I was jump seating, I said, you got and and they were confirmed on the flight. I was like, you guys just get to the gate and I will take like if if I can't get in in line and bags checked and through security in time to make the flight, I'll just meet you in San Francisco on a later flight. Once we got to the terminal, it was busy, but we didn't wait in a single line. We had our our airline had so many bag check kiosks that there was no line. We got to pre pre check, no line. Mm -hmm. We got into the terminal, the terminal was packed. Like there was not a seat to be had. But for whatever reason, the lines just were not there. So we're I I think we're finally as an industry, because we talked about all those summer meltdowns. We're finally right. up to a staffing level that we were able to deal with big crowds like this. And that's great to see that this was that this felt like pre-pandemic, I would say. Mm-hmm, right. just, yeah, it, like, I mean, it's, it's busy, it's crowded, but it's not hectic and chaotic like it has been over the last 18 months.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember days where we were holding planes because we just didn't, TSA didn't have the staff or whatever to manage the volumes at the main terminal. One other note for my airport, it was eer- not eerily quiet, but usually when it's a holiday travel, the curbside starts filling up and the roadway up to the airport, you know, goes out, you know, uh, away from the airport onto the freeway. Didn't happen this year. And I think it was two things. I think passengers were being told by the media outlets, and thank you for doing that media, to get to the airport early. And I believe people were doing that. But on top of that, the metro train just started to Washington Dulles. And I think a lot of people were taking that and you could really sense it. There were less people on the roadways because they were taking the train, which was awesome. Moving on, the Middle
1: East is getting its moment in the world's eye right now with the ongoing World Cup in Qatar. Quick shout out to the U.S. men's team for making it to the knockout stage. Well, Saudi Arabia didn't want to be left out of the mix. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman just announced a plan that will transform the current Riyadh airport into a new massive hub. Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund will finance the project, which encompasses more than 22 square miles. It'll feature six parallel runways And accommodate up to 120 million passengers by 2030, and eventually 185 million annual passengers by 2050. The airport will be the home base of the newly launched Riyadh International Airlines, or RIA, which the country hopes will directly compete with the ME3 for regional dominance. These moves come as part of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030, as they call it, an initiative aimed at diversifying the economy and minimizing dependence on oil revenue. Drew, we, we talked about RIA several episodes ago. And now we they did. want they want to create their Doha. They want to create their Abu Dhabi. They want to create their Dubai. They, they want to create their mm-hmm. jewel in the Middle East to be able to, mm-hmm. to transport hundreds of millions of, or tens of millions of people.
0: No, it's great. I mean, we were talking, we, had a, we were asking each other, like, where is Saudi Arabian, where's Saudi Airlines? What's their hub? Is it Jeddah or Riyadh? So their hub is Jeddah, which is a, um, it's a commercial port. And it's also the gateway to these pilgrimages to the Hajj, um, Mecca and Medina, are those cities. But then Riyadh, I didn't know this. Riyadh is actually the largest city. It's also the capital. There's an opportunity there. And Doug, this name, RIA, I don't know what it stands for. I'm wondering if they're trying to make it sound like Riyadh, R-I-A, Riyadh. No,
1: it's, it's Riyadh International Airlines.
0: Okay, I did not know that. So they're naming it after the city. That's interesting. The, do you believe these numbers? I mean, I, they're very ambitious. So they, they're saying this air, new airport that they're building or this new hub will able to be able to accommodate 120 million passengers by 2030. In 2018, Atlanta accommodated 107 million. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me in eight years, you're going to surpass the busiest airport in the world from basically nothing. It sounds very ambitious. What do you think?
1: I, I, I believe it. And the reason I say that is because I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and I've seen all the construction and, and everything that they can do with money. And you look at Dubai, it's it's maxed out. The Dubai airport right now is maxed out. Emirates is completely full there. Qatar Airways in Doha, mm-hmm. it, they have their brand new airport. They're moving 100 million people a year through there. We've talked mm-hmm. about Abu Dhabi, and we've talked about the this aviation center of gravity. We've mentioned that a lot, right. how it's, it's moving yes. east into that region. And there's a yeah. stat that I remember from one of my grad school classes that Dubai is within an eight-hour flight of like 90% of the Williams. world's pop- population. There's no other okay. city in the world that is that close to the majority of the population of the world. Mm-hmm. Riyadh is not that much farther west from Dubai. It's still in the same region. And there's just mm-hmm. so much demand, not, not necessarily to go to Saudi Arabia, but we talk about Africa to India, Europe to India. We talk about these traffic flows. And if Dubai yeah. and Doha are busting at the seams, I think that there definitely is a need to a release valve, if you will, to, to release some of the pressure on the other two mm-hmm. major hubs in the region. I, I Yeah, with, with money, with the way that Saudi yeah. Arabia is growing, I think that within eight years, they can be up to that 120 million passengers.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Another thing is, so this is Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I think he's younger. I don't know too much, but I think he's younger and he's trying to to modernize Saudi Arabia and diversify diversify their economy, which is basically just about 100% oil. They're reading the tea leaves and they can see that oil is not going to be a big money maker forever. And there are a lot of places, and I believe it, that we've reached peak oil, where we're using the most oil that we'll ever use. I have a partially electric car. You're going to get an electric car. Robbie is looking for a car. It's going to be an electric or a plug-in hybrid. The writing's on the wall. So these countries are are diversifying their economies. I mean, Dubai Mm -hmm. has. Dubai is a financial center. It's an aviation hub. So this is what Saudi Arabia is looking to do, and, and that's great. I am uh, I am willing to fly them because they will have alcohol and uh, looks like they'll have a <laughs> looks like they'll have a pretty fancy product, right? If they're going to compete with uh, Emirates and Qatar, they're going to have to in order to yeah. be competitive. All right, our final news story shows how optimistic most are about the continued rebound in travel, but also is trying something that has continuously seemed to fail: low-cost transatlantic service. This is like the definition of insanity. You know, you keep (laughs) doing the same thing, expecting different results. I'll hold some of my thoughts until later. But uh, what we're talking about is a new airline called Fly Atlantic. They plan to pick up where Norwegian and Wow left off. It seeks to enter the market as early as 2024 and plans to fly to 35 destinations from its Belfast, Northern Ireland base. I like that. Belfast Mm -hmm. has been through a lot. So it's nice to see people investing In Northern Ireland, the airline is still in talks with manufacturers, but will likely either purchase the A321 or the 737 MAX. It will start with a fleet of six aircraft, but wants to expand to 18 within the first few years of operation. Belfast currently has no nonstop transatlantic service. The Fly Atlantic CEO Andrew Pine said, quote, the airline has a vision of Belfast as a strong aviation hub linking Europe and North America, and we promise to offer affordable fares and brand new aircraft. Let me just say one thing before we move on. The moment I saw Fly Atlantic and a new low fare European airline, I'm like, please let it not be from Iceland. (laughs) (laughs) How many airlines does a country of 300,000 people need? (laughs) (laughs) So I was happy to hear that it was from Northern Ireland and Belfast.
1: Yeah, Belfast. As you said, they've they've been through a lot with all the the conflict in the 80s and the 90s up there. But look at Aer Lingus in Dublin. They are turning Dublin into a transatlantic hub. Uh, I, I mean, they really Absolutely. have done yeah. a good job. Belfast is not that much farther north. And when you look at the Great Circle route, it makes sense. It, it's like Iceland. It's that mm-hmm. that northwestern European destination that, that you can easily fly through. And I honestly, I wish them luck. I, I hope it works. But Look at, we talked about Norwegian, how they got rid of all their 787s during the pandemic and, and they really shrunk. Right. Wow went out of business. Uh, a lot of people have tried this low cost transatlantic, but JetBlue mm-hmm. seems to be doing it and making it work.
0: Right, they're adding. They're mm-hmm.
1: adding service to Europe. But then you look at Norse Atlantic up in, in Norway and Sweden, they got 787s. Mm-hmm. They basically, are I mean, the CEO and founder <laughs> was the CEO of, Norwegian. He left basically creating a new Norwegian with the same airplanes, just different paint scheme. I've seen their airplanes in LA and other places, but they're really cutting back on the US service during the winter because it, it doesn't seem to be working for them. So will fly Atlantic work. I have no idea. Many have tried and few, if any, have succeeded.
0: Yeah, I I honestly think this will work because that's an area that needs air service. So you probably have a local market, not just connecting traffic like in Iceland. I mean, some of these are, it's getting ridiculous in Iceland. So we talked about um, Iceland air and then it was, wow, wow went out of service, went out of business in 2019. And now we haven't even really spoken about this. There's an airline called Play, Mm -hmm. which is mostly wow um executives and it is it has become so such a joke these airlines coming and going that someone that they someone tried to launch mom did you hear about yeah, this yeah mom which is like wow upside down new new icelandic carrier it was a joke it was some icelandic iceland university student trying to make fun of all these icelandic airlines he called it mom which is wow upside down the plane was the same livery with the uh, wow upside down. And he actually got 6,000 people wanting to book <laughs> <laughs> that before he finally said, no, I'm kidding. It was a joke. <laughs> 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 Real quick, before we leave this, we have to give credit to, do you remember, does the name Freddie Laker? Spike yeah. Bell? I know it's mm-hmm. before your time, it's a little bit before my time. He was probably the pioneer of these low fare airlines. Yeah. He was Laker, flying the DC Laker 10, Airways. Laker Airways. He was flying the SkyTrain, which was a DC 10 from, I believe it was London Gatwick to Kennedy, it only lasted five years because the bigger airlines totally reduced their fares to the, you know, what Freddie Laker was charging and then he was out of business and he actually sued the major airlines. And I think he won like millions of dollars. No, people keep trying it, but this one, Doug, I really hope, I really hope it's successful. Fly Atlantic. Anyone from Fly Atlantic, if you're listening, come on the show and um, talk about your airline. All right, let's move on. So our main topic, Doug, this week piggybacks on the last story as well as something I brought up a few episodes back, the rise of single-aisle transatlantic flying. As I mentioned, I've been seeing a lot more A321s in Washington now during the winter, replacing the larger wide-body aircraft that operated in the summer months. TAP Air Portugal, Aer Lingus, Avianca was operating an A330. They're down to an A321 SAS. SAS. I know. All these are flying the a three twenty one.
1: We've talked about how it seems like it'll only grow in popularity with airlines, as many have A321LRs and XLRs on order. And I've even seen Air Canada Max 8s at Heathrow on several occasions. Sorry, at EFRO on several occasions. (laughs) (laughs) Though Airbus seems to mostly be cornering that market. How did we get here, Drew?
0: We've been pushing Boeing to launch the NMA, which stands for New Middle Market Aircraft, which most feel would serve as a 757-767 replacement a much needed size of aircraft that the A321 is stepping into, into fill as those fleets quickly become retired. You can probably sense the exasperation in my voice. Mm. You know, like our jet blue Alaska merger, we keep pushing airlines and Boeing to do the right thing, but they're not. (laughs) So now we just wait. So Boeing just announced that it has no plans to go forward with a clean sheet design until sometime in the 2030s meaning it could be at least 2035 before a new Boeing aircraft enters service.
1: Yeah, and our buddy Greg did some research for us regarding the Boeing of yesteryear compared to the Boeing of today. Thanks for all this, Greg. It's all fascinating stuff and something that I hadn't really stopped to think about. He brought up this point that the 707 had its first flight in December of 1957. That was when Boeing entered the jet age. In the following 12 years, Boeing introduced three more clean sheet designs for a total of four new aircraft after the advent of the jet age. That's the 707, 727, mm-hmm. 737, and then the 747, all in the first 12 years.
0: So with all these advances in computer technology where the computers do most of the work for you and you don't have to bring a, you know, build a clay model for everything, You would think that they could do much more now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going on a tangent. All right. After the 747 entered service, it was another 12 years before another clean sheet design took flight. The 767's first flight was in September 1981, followed by the 757 a short time later. In the early 80s, they came up with two planes, basically, the 57 and the 67, at the same time. After those two aircraft, Boeing waited even longer. This time, it was 13 years before your aircraft, Doug, This 777 had its first flight in June 1994. And then Boeing's most recent clean
1: sheet aircraft, the 787, had its first flight in December 2009, which was 15 years after the triple first flew. It has now been 13 years since that first flight, and it looks like it could be a decade or longer before the presumed, what we're expecting, will be called the 797, Makes his maiden voyage, which which will put possibly twenty five years, twenty five to thirty years in between the seven eight seven and the seven nine seven. So we can see it, it's like a reverse exponential curve. It, it was right. four airplanes in the first twelve years, and then they waited, and then two, and they waited, and then one Z, two Z along the way, and the time frame is just getting longer and longer. Is that because they're able to, the technology that they're using, the airplanes they're using, are better and they last longer and airlines continue to order them.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also, I mean, we've discussed this before, Doug, I think they're so mired in just trying to get their current planes certificated or certified that they can't even think about launching a new product right now. So the 777-9X, hopefully that'll be flying in 2025. We don't even know. Now I'm hearing there's uh, problems with the GE engines Mm -hmm. so that the testing testing is on hold. Yeah. Yeah, and then the seven thirty seven dash seven and the seven thirty seven dash ten still haven't been certified, so they still don't officially have an extension beyond twenty twenty two because Boeing was supposed to upgrade the ca- the the cockpits right with um, more advanced technology, yeah. But they haven't, so there is some movement in Congress. We should probably talk about that next week because there has been some news about it. But I think they're just they're just bogged down trying to get their current airplanes. You Know their current airplane certified,
1: yeah. That this is really interesting. Something that Greg didn't bring up when did McDonnell Douglas and Boeing merge? Do you remember what mm, year it was?
0: I want to say, I would say the early 2000s.
1: I, I think it was 97, 97, okay. 98, somewhere around there. The new Boeing, we'll call it new Boeing, mm-hmm. they've only had one clean sheet design since the merger with McDonnell Douglas. It's Isn't a that different crazy? company. It is a different company than it was. And, and we've talked about the headquarters moves. They moved from Seattle right. to Chicago, now to Arlington in Northern Virginia. Arlington, Virginia. It's just, it's a different company than what it was. And Airbus, meanwhile, is just eating Boeing's lunch when it comes to orders and airplane designs and, and everything. It, it, actually, we could possibly do another deep dive in another episode about Airbus. Airbus launched mm-hmm. A300 in, what was it, nineteen seventy? Yeah. So in the last 50 years, A300, A310, A320, A330, A340, A350, A380, we're at seven, seven clean sheet <laughs> no, designs. Can I, stop
0: you, can I stop you a second? It's yeah. still the same fuselage as an A300 for all of those planes, except the A321 and a 3 Yeah, but it's,
1: it, yes, same fuselage, but it's a clean sheet design. The, the okay. 757, 737, 727, 707, they were all the same fuselage. Mm-hmm. So it's you're making the same argument Where, yeah. when you, when you have something. To,
0: wasn't.
1: No, but when you have something that works, you, you just you expand on it.
0: You, you expand on it. That's a good point. Traffic is rising all over the world, right? So we're looking for a 767 replacement. So has traffic risen enough that the 787-8 and 9 fill that void? That's right? true. Mm-hmm. Because we're looking for a wide body regional transport. We have it. It's a seven, eight, seven eight. It's just a few seats bigger than the seven, six, seven. The only concern about that is it's not made for short range, right? It's made for long range. So you have all this extra weight and all these fuel tanks that you don't need to fly from San Francisco to New York. Okay. So maybe to, they can just tweak one of those.
1: To your point, we've talked about how United has has teased this wide body order. Well, the Wall Street Journal today reported that they are in final discussions and they are possibly a week away really? from announcing that order. We had talked about is it the A350, is it the 78? Everything that I was reading in the Wall Street Journal like, an hour ago says it's that they Next are in week. final final talks with Boeing for 787, a massive 787 order mainly to oh. replace 767s. Drew, you just like United and, and Boeing are working okay. on a plan to do what you just said replace 767s right. with 787s.
0: This will be really exciting. So, we're definitely going to talk about this next week with any new information we have. But here's the question is it existing models, or is Boeing going to do what I've been talking about for months now to the high point gross where you tell me to shut up? A high gross weight 787 10 would solve a lot of problems and would replace. All these fleets of 777-200s that are getting very old, it's the same capacity. Can we just have the same range mm-hmm. <laughs> of a 777-200 that can make it to Asia? I think it would fill a lot of gaps. That's really exciting. I did not know this. Stay tuned because we'll we'll be on it. Drew, we love our listener
1: feedback and questions. We got a few more this week. James said that he loves the show and asked us what apps we use to get seating and end number info on our flights. You, you want to go first?
0: I just read this outline this morning and... I I'm, I apologize, I'm not completely prepared for this, but I can tell you what I use. So he's asking N number, N number. Sometimes I'll just type it into Google, right? If I'm interested in a certain N number, just try that. Just use regular Google because it'll give you a lot of sources. I, I use planespotters.net if I want to know about a specific aircraft. Just for example, today I wanted to, let's. I I wanted to use an example. So let's, Um, if you just go into planespotters.net, and type in November 777-UA, which is the first 777 uh, commercially used, it's great. It'll show you when it was purchased. It'll show you the registration number. It'll show you if there were any seat configuration changes. If it if it um, passed hands between carriers, it will show you that. Mm-hmm. Planespot.net, I, I use that a lot. And then for seating information, I just go to the specific airlines. I mean, you, you could go to seatguru.com or wherever. But when we were going to uh, Europe, I wanted to see what the seat configuration was for 747-8 on Lufthansa. So I just went to their website.
1: Mm-hmm. What,
0: what do you use?
1: Well, the net is great. I like to, uh, when I'm sitting at the airport waiting for a flight or something and I see a plane taxi by and I'm curious about it. And good example is before my Inchon flight the other day, there was a DHL 767-200 that taxied by that had the windows plugged up, meaning it had previously been a commercial airplane. And that always raised it. Like, I, I'm very curious. I'm wonder, I wonder what the story of this airplane is, who, who they first mm-hmm. flew for when it ended up in cargo. This particular yeah. airplane was delivered to ANA in 1982, flew for ANA mm-hmm. for 15 years, And it was converted to cargo back in the late 90s this airplane has been flying cargo now for 20 plus years for abx and and then later dhl and i I learned all Mm -hmm. that from planespotters.net it's it's awesome i'm telling you great info i think what james is asking though is our particular flights when we are on a flight Mm -hmm. what is the end number going to be or what is it i'm wondering if he keeps a log of all the airplanes he's flown I'll tell you oh, right. Flight Radar 24 is great. If if you're on a flight and you put in that flight number, it'll tell you yeah. what the what the registration number is. And we, yes. we say N number, that's a North American thing. Uh, other parts mm-hmm. of the world, it's diff- it doesn't start with a November. It's it's different mm-hmm. registration numbers. But if you go to FR24, Flight Radar 24, it gives you the registration number for that particular flight. So if if that's how you, what, what your question is James, you can look right. at that. As for seating, yeah, see C- C- Guru is great to look and see what the uh, configuration is and, and where you might sit. But if he's trying to figure out, uh, like if you're going to book a flight or you're, you're looking at several different flights and you're seeing what's open, like what seats are open, mm-hmm. I always do ghost bookings. I do a fake booking. Oh. I get all the way up to the selecting your seat. And you can do that on a lot of airlines before you pay for the ticket. If I'm comparing, if, if I know I'm flying on... A, a couple of days. If it, if the day doesn't matter, maybe it's a Tuesday mm-hmm. or Wednesday or something. And I'm like, well, I could go on Tuesday or Wednesday, but I really want this particular airplane, this particular seat to be able to cherry pick which flight you're on. You just do ghost bookings. It, it's, a, it's a little bit more work. As far as I know, there's not like one place you can go to, to just look at the seat. Do you
0: actually have to make a booking and pay for it, or can no. you see the seat map before you put in your credit card? At, at,
1: with a lot of airlines, you get you can choose your seat before you actually pay for it, and then you just can't like you 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 just exit out of that that booking and you never finalize the booking, and you can get an idea of. And I used to do that when I was flying for work, and I was I would look and see which flight do I have the best chance to upgrade on. I would look at the. The first class cabin the see map. how many seats and then i would choose my right. flight based on the the flight that had more seats open mm-hmm. now yep. we, when we went to europe we talked about this because Lufthansa and i think sas they didn't show the seat map they didn't show wh- where people are sitting and uh, we, we didn't have we would have to book a ticket and then choose our seat to be able to see it. So some airlines, it's behind, call it the paywall. Essentially, you have to pay for your ticket, and then you can choose your seat and and see it. But other airlines, you can choose your seat before you pay.
0: Can we talk about this for just a second? Yeah. So Some airlines are completely transparent and will show you their whole seat map at any time. So is that a competitive disadvantage? Because they're telling their competitors how many seats they have open. To me, if I'm a business traveler or any traveler, I actually appreciate that. Yeah. And it makes me want to book that airline more because it's so transparent. Are they shooting themselves in the foot by giving all this information? I don't know. But I can tell you as a non-rev, mostly as a non-rev, but also when I'm flying revenue, it's nice to be able to see what kind of seats I can get on a specific flight, just like you said. And then that that will help me choose which flight I want to be on based on if i know that there's going to be a middle seat open i'll book i'll book that flight. All right James, thanks for that question. Really good question. Uh, another listener, Moses, and Moses had uh, reached out to us and he was flying through my airport and asked for some uh, advice. He only had like a t- 2 hour connection time and he was changing airlines with different tickets. I'm like, "No, don't do it Moses." <laughs> mm-hmm. So he changed his flight to get there earlier, and i also told him, "Hey, while you're at uh, my airport, there's lots of lounges." So kind of, you know, that'll be your incentive. To uh, get out a little earlier. But anyway, he asked us a good question. He said, regarding something, this is regarding something strange he experienced recently while leaving Frankfurt. He said, the captain announced that the gear would be down for a while after takeoff. The flight was very loud for the first several minutes, and the gear wasn't retracted until about 15 minutes after takeoff. He was on a 787 10 headed for Abu Dhabi. Doug, any ideas? Uh, First of all, do we want to guess which airline?
1: I'm, I'm guessing that he was on Etihad.
0: Yeah, 100%. I, I don't yeah. think there's any other airline that flies that route with a dash 10.
1: Moses, I have no idea what was going on. The only time that we keep the gear down, actually, there are a couple times that we keep the gear down or we have to lower the gear. If we're in mm-hmm. icing conditions, like we, we have a bunch of slush that we're taxiing through, we'll cycle the gear mm-hmm. to make sure that the, the gear well doesn't freeze. Once we get airborne, we rotate, we're climbing out, we put the gear down. And then we put it back up. It's, it's just to, to make sure that if we were to retract the gear, and it was all wet, and then we fly for 10 hours at altitude, we, we want to make sure that it's going to open, like it's not going to freeze close. So we'll, we'll cycle the gear, we don't keep it hanging like that. Another time that we might lower the gear is if we get like a brake overheat temp light or something like that. But we don't know mm-hmm. that until after takeoff. And, and again, the checklist drives us to if we get that, slow down to the, the gear extension speed, extend the gear, the air the airflow will cool down the brakes and then we can retract right. it. And, and again, yeah. we, we retract it and we go on. I can't think of a situation where before takeoff, the captain would announce that they have to leave the gear down and then they keep it down for 15 minutes because climb gradient and climb ratios are a really important thing. In the KC-10, all of our takeoff data is predicated on Gear retraction within four seconds of liftoff. Otherwise, we're mm-hmm. not guaranteed that the mountain in front of us that we had run our data right. for that we're going to yeah, clear affects it affects your climb. Performance. It, it affects our climb performance. Frankfurt is in pseudo mountainous terrain. It, you've mm-hmm. got uh, some mountains nearby. Not to say that this airplane is going to hit them, but I, I mean it definitely Im- impacts the performance. I can't think of a single reason why ahead of time the captain would make an announcement and why they would have to keep the gear down for 15 minutes. As Moses says, mm-hmm. I, I can't, Yeah,
0: I don't know. Do you think it would be uh, a landing gear indication to check the indications to make sure it still no. shows down? I don't know.
1: No, no. Cause you, you could do that yeah. in two seconds. You're like, yep, it's down. Okay. We'll yeah, put it up. Yeah. I have no idea what the reason for this was.
0: All right. Listeners. If you are a seven, eight, seven pilot or you work for this carrier, or you've ever had this, please tell us why you would leave the gear down for several minutes after takeoff.
1: Sorry, Moses. I, I know you were hoping to get an answer out of us, but I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Uh, I mean, like I said, there are a couple of situations where we, we do have to lower it after takeoff, but that's just momentarily. Well, to our listeners, this podcast is your show. So go on our website, nexttripnetwork.com. Let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at nexttrippodcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel.
0: All right. Thanks, Doug. Thank you to Greg for giving us that whole spreadsheet. I think we'll put that, uh, we'll put that on the show notes. Listeners, if you're interested in uh, Greg's deep dive, if you want to get way too, you want to do a tank dive like <laughs> we do, um, you can look at it and give us your comments. Uh, Greg would love that. And um, thanks again, Greg. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough.